The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is going to be dealing with things like prioritizing privacy over free expression or the vice versa. And we are welcoming back a wonderful guest that we've had on before. She's coming to us from the D.C. area. Wonderful, brilliant woman. Wait to hear her background. We're just so thrilled to have her. Nula O'Connor is the president and CEO of the Center for Democracy and Technology in D.C. She is an internationally recognized expert in internet and technology policy, particularly in the areas of privacy and information governance. And she is a she's so passionate about technology and the internet and all the instruments of global free expression and freedom. And she's committed to finding policy solutions that really affect everyday people. She has an incredible background. She was the global privacy leader at General Electric, where she was responsible for privacy policy uh, across all of the numerous divisions. And then prior to joining CDT, she worked at Amazon.com as Vice President of Compliance and Consumer Trust, and she was Associate General Counsel for Data and Privacy Protection. And Nula's time in technology sector really began way back if you remember hearing about DoubleClick. She was part of a team of professionals that were brought in to address the public outcry over advertising, the advertising giant's proposal to merge on an offline data set. So that was a very big time, and that's where she really pulled together a lot of great, great uh, things for that company. Later, she served as Deputy Director of the Office of Policy and Strategic Planning, Chief Privacy Officer, and the Chief Counsel for, the t- for Technology at the U.S. Department of Commerce, where she worked on global technology policy. And she became the very first statutory appointed Chief Privacy Officer in Federal Service when she was named the first Chief Privacy Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. So she's done incredible work. I could go on and on and on, but I really want us to get the chance to talk to her about all the great things that she's doing. <clears throat> she serves on numerous uh, nonprofit boards, and um, even though she was born in Northern Ireland, she grew up in New York City, and she has, you know, she's gone to Princeton, Harvard, Georgetown. Oh, she's incredible. So we're so thrilled to have her join us. Thank you so much, Nula, for coming on our show again. 
Thanks so much, Mark. It's so great to be here again. So let's talk about I loved your article uh, that was in the Daily Journal and important stuff dealing with the right to be forgotten. But first, let's talk a little bit more about privacy in the digital age, because you're dealing with that all the time at CDT. Well, I'm so excited again to be here, and thanks for all the great work you're doing in educating the community, both of technologists and policy people, and, and the larger uh, world about the intersection of the self and technology. And you're right, that's one of our big macro themes at the Center for Democracy and Technology, the relationship of the individual to technology, to their own data, to the changing world, and the changing norms in the digital world. And the the construct we are trying to promote is one of the digital self, that your self-expression, your data, your privacy, your way of expressing yourself and describing yourself online are important and, and valuable kind of outgrowths of your person. And so... People talk about you know, your privacy, your data, your data ownership. There's lots of ways to look at it. I really like the way that has come kind of along in Latin American law, which is habeas data or my data myself, that, that this is about one's kind of relationship to the world, relationship to yourself, to the other, to companies, to governments. Um, so we are, we're exploring all of these um, great possibilities that technology brings to the world and some of the changing norms and some of the concerns around the, the erosion of privacy, the erosion of dignity of the human. And so we're looking at this not just as lawyers and policy people and as technologists, we've got engineers on our staff, but we're really, we're talking to sociologists and historians and psychologists. I think we need a real cross-cultural, cross-kind of disciplinary thinking and approach to the changing nature of society in the digital age. Yeah. And, you know, it was interesting. We, I was just talking with a bunch of people, with the Poneman people, and we were all saying, well, you know, what is really privacy? And when people hear about my show, they go, well, what do you mean by privacy? So what do we mean by privacy nowadays? That is such a great question, and I think, you know, I, first of all, I think that the, the stories of the demise of privacy or the lack of interest in privacy by younger generations are greatly exaggerated. It's like that old Mark Twain quote, I think, the, the stories of my, the reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. Yeah, right. Um, I think people have uh, changing relationships with their information and with the digital world, and I think folks generally know what a fair deal looks like, that um, we're, we're, folks are on Facebook, they understand that they get advertising, they understand that they are sharing their data with that company and with each other in ways that are you know, purposeful and intentional. And there are benefits, there are societal benefits to connecting with your family. For example, my extended family is in Northern Ireland. I would never see my cousin's you know, baby pictures if it weren't for Facebook. Right. Um, but there are also you know, challenges to feeling like your self-expression in that in that portal or in other social media portals are being watched or monetized or used or you know in the most extreme example shared with the government and I think that's what uh, folks are we've talked to a lot of people who are concerned about the NSA surveillance and the you know the Snowden revelations and it was the blurring of the line between relationships that one has legitimately with companies or with each other um, and having that data suddenly end up in the hands of a third party, in this case the federal government, um, and in a way that could be used against you, you know, that certain data points could be put together um, to create a profile of you that wasn't really exactly accurate or wasn't really who you are. Um, And 
you know, even more concerning that the government can deprive you of rights and of liberties in a way that no private sector institution really can. Um, so when, when, you know, when I talk about, about privacy, I think about the ability to control one's persona, both on or offline, the, the ability to control um, how data is used and with whom it is shared. Um, and that doesn't mean that I am, you know, unwilling to give data. You know, the example I always used to use, even before I worked there, was Amazon, because I think it's a very legitimate use of information. Right. They have to know where you live to deliver the book, right? right. I mean, that's a, that's a legitimate use of the data. Um, and it's a company that I consider very responsible in their use of, of customer data um, and, and in creating better products and creating better service to the customer. But it's when I think there are additional third-party uses, uh, new uses of data that are unexpected, sharing of data with um, other parties that were not part of the initial relationship or transaction. But to me, privacy is also a very visceral kind it, It's Someone once said, it's like that old standard from the Supreme Court on, uh, on, <laughs> on obscenity or on pornography. Yeah. <laughs> so when you see it, right, you kind of right. know privacy is missing when right. you don't see it, right? right? You know it is in the absence of, right. of privacy when, when mm. there's a miss. Um, to me, it's, it's about, again, controlling and creating boundaries, creating boundaries around yourself, mm -hmm. around your family. We know privacy in the physical space. We know we put up fences and hedges and, you know, we want privacy in our backyard. We know that that's being breached when someone flies a drone over us and takes pictures of us, you know, sunbathing in our backyard. Right, so, right. Again, we know it when we don't see it. Um, and I think what this is, is not redefining people's expectations of privacy, but redefining the case studies, the, the uses, the examples. And I think it's fascinating to watch the Supreme Court articulate this in the digital age. And I think they're really getting it, which is really exciting. Um, you know, someone said to me once, it's not the justices who have the cell phones. You know, it's their clerks who are, who are writing this great language about, you know, the cell phone is more like a, a trunk full of, of it, someone carrying around, you know, a locker trunk full of information about themselves. You would no more let someone search, you know, all of the, the bowels of your house and all of your, you know, your files in your file cabinet uh, without an appropriate search warrant, why would you let them search your, your, your cell phone, right? Just, just because the, the digital age affords such flexibility and agility and mobility of data does not mean that those rules or the norms are changing. It actually means simply that we need to reinforce what our standard expectations are. And I think the court in, in recent decisions has done that and has, has been very eloquent on the fact that simply because the technology advances does not mean that our privacy has to erode. Yes, I love it. And, you know, before when you were talking about, like, your definition being, you know, that uh, the right to control our persona online and offline, I love that. And here we are sitting on the campus of the University of California. This airs right here. But, of course, we have business people driving by, et cetera. But I think um, when you were talking about that, that it's overrated that people say, oh, the young people have no privacy. You know, I, I would agree with you that they have a different version of it. They want to be able to control. They want people to their friends to see what they're saying on Facebook and Instagram and all the other uh, social networking. But they don't want it to be used against them. They don't want it to keep them from getting a job. They don't want it. They don't want to be harassed. They don't want to be cyber bullied. They don't want any of that. So I think we're just kind of going through this evolution of young people realizing, hey, you know, I want to be able to control. I don't want my parents to see what I'm writing <laughs> or, I, you know, I want to have that privacy. So it's just kind of um, 
we're we're just going through this wild west evolution and the young people want it but they're they're you know also trying to decipher what what is privacy for themselves as well don't you think i think that's true and i think i think you're right that um we we all make useful mistakes. Uh, the, the 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 downside of having a full fledged digital life means a lot of those mistakes live online forever, right? And yes. so we all need, do need to teach our children to be wary about you know the digital evidence that they're leaving about their personal lives online. But I think technology and and evolving kind of norms and regul and laws can assist with that as well. Right. One of the you know things I always talk about is the the increasing use of ephemeral technologies, right? The disappearing email, the disappearing photo, the right. um, the the ability to have things really not kept forever. And then you get into challenges like is forever is, is erase really erase? You know, does delete really mean delete? And yeah. and if companies are making those promises, they obviously need to be able to really back them up and and to show that you know all of the backup tapes are really gone. You know, all of the the uh, the right. uh, the copies wherever they are stored in the in the in the cloud are gone. Um, but I do think we also are becoming um, aware of the downsides, and and we all need to protect ourselves certainly against misuse. But there's some some role I think for both good corporate citizenship here and also probably some rethinking of the existing regulation. For example, you know, the Fair Credit Re Reporting Act, I could go on for hours about how much I love the Fair Credit Reporting <laughs> Act. It's one of the best, most effective, you know, privacy laws, frankly, in the world because it's a very narrowly tailored but very effective and very evenly applied statute that basically allows for access to data and also allows for redress against in inappropriate and, you know, incorrect data. Um, and there is, as we're, we're going to get to, I'm sure, in a minute. And it also, a lot, it, you know, it gives us the opportunity to limit who can see that data. Exactly. Yeah. So limited in scope, limited in use. And I was just going to say that there is a right to be forgotten in the Fair Credit Reporting Act. People always say, right. the U.S. is all, all Wild West and, you know, has no privacy laws. And that's not at, at all accurate. It's a very narrowly tailored, narrowly scoped right to be forgotten that says after, and I don't know the exact seven numbers years. anymore. Seven years. Yeah, it's seven so years. years, your bankruptcy is erased. After two yeah. years, you're forgiven for having a short sale on your house. You know, yeah. there, are, there are clear metrics that are tied to the risk to the lender, tied to the risk to the credit system, right. um, tied to the harm, but that also are evenly applied across race, gender, class, ethnic, you know, origin, Right. Every metric, you know, the rules are the same, and that's a great equalizing force. And, you know, of course, it's back to the, 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 the reason for the passage of that law and creating greater equality in mortgage and other, other um, lending patterns. Um, but it is, it's a great privacy law because it allows you to control more of your data. And, but it also says if the data is true and it's accurate, it gets to stay for a certain amount of time. Yes, yes. Um, and, that's, and that's fair, you know, that's, that's equality as well. Yes, and you have a right to sue if it's erroneous and it isn't taken off. So that's another thing. You have a right to redress if exactly. you find an error. And, you know, this is what I remember several years ago I testified on a bill that uh, Senator Bill Nelson from Florida had introduced make very similar to the idea of the Fair Credit Reporting Act for background checks. Exactly. But, it, and, but it died. And, and I spoke yeah. exactly like what you're saying, saying this is what you need to have. This is great. Right. This is, it's working. You know, yes, there's challenges and yes, there's people who have to sue. But basically everybody knows what it is and you have certain rules. And, uh, and we definitely need that for background checks. I, you know, I get people calling me all the time with errors and, you know, criminal identity 
identity theft, and there isn't the same kind of redress that you have under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, even though a background check should be totally subject to the Fair Credit Reporting Act, but it doesn't always happen that way. So, And that's exactly my point, that some of these online resources, you know, if they're going to be used for decision-making about jobs and about credit and about the kinds of things Reputation. that we could end up with disparate impact or, you know, right. inappropriate decision-making, there are exist. I guess my argument would, would somewhat be there are existing laws that already es- espouse those principles, and we need to think about whether new data is being used in a way that really would fall under those laws. I'm not saying I'm sure that that's, that is or is not happening, but I think, especially in the job yeah, um, it, application the background process, check. Yes, you know, we, sure. when I was at GE, we wrote a great policy about not using Facebook and not using social media sites unless the applicant actually wanted to highlight something, maybe an article they'd written or something else that was online. Um, and so that way, you know, there's better transparency about right. what information is being used, how it's being used, is it being used responsibly, and is it relevant? You, you hit on the exactly right word. Is it relevant to the inquiry at hand? And so, um, you know, so yes, we'd like, you know, it's, it's always wise for the, the, the individual to take care about what they post online, that sort of thing. But it's, you know, they shouldn't have to live in a world where they have to be worried all the time that everything they post is going to be used against them later in a court of law, you know, or in a, in a job application. So. Right. And they don't always know what's being collected and what, what kind of profiles are being, you know, compiled together and then sold and resold. And that's, that I think is, is one of the, the real problems is that lack of transparency. You were talking about transparency, that we need transparency. At least with a credit report, you can see what's on there. Exactly. And, and you can't always see I mean there isn't one central repository that we can see all the information that's being collected about us about our reputation or whatever it's not all in one place so we can't even you know you have to go to 50 million different places and the one good place at least to start with is the is the you know Fair Credit Reporting Act and, and to get the credit bureaus, but you don't get all that. There's nothing like that for all the background checks. So, but I wanted to get back to the Center for Democracy and Technology because I think a lot of people don't even know what it is. And you've uh, now, how long have you been with them now? Um, how long has it been? Well, thank you so much for asking because I love 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 to talk about CDT. Um, the oldest internet advocacy organization. I would describe. You know, we we advanced civil liberties and digital liberties online. Um, CDT was founded out of the history of the ACLU and EFF and great advocacy organizations um, all, over 20 years ago by Jerry Berman and Deirdre Mulligan and Danny Weitzner and a, and a great team of experts and legal and technology scholars. Um, I'm so privileged to be the third uh, CEO of the organization, and we have just an incredible, incredible team of folks. Um, we have technologists, again, uh, engineers and computer scientists. We have lawyers and policy people and and advocates. We work not only in the U.S. on public policy in Washington and with companies and with other advocacy organizations and with the White House and on the Hill and in all the, the government agencies, but increasingly internationally. We work in front of European courts and in front of the commission and in front of the parliament and increasingly elsewhere in the world. 
to advance the idea, again, of the rights of the individual online. So privacy, free expression, you know, the digital sovereignty, as, as uh, one of our, uh, our friends at Mozilla calls it. So uh, it is just, and it's a great time. Again, it's, you know, in the, the era after Snowden, it is just an incredible time to be working on these issues and to be, you know, helping forge better policy around the rights of the individual in the digital world. Yes, and I know the CDT always testifies in Congress to, with wonderful testimony. So, yeah, I've been a, a real fan of CDT and have had them on before. And we're just thrilled that you're at the helm now because we know it's going to do even better work than ever before. But talking about Snowden and what's been going on, are, are we any closer to any kind of reform on surveillance i mean it's just uh i just heard about how there is um a a mandate for all cars in the next few years for all of our cars to be talking and and giving out disseminating information about where we are how fast we're going our braking system and more and i just I mean, the more I hear and the more I read, the more it looks like we're in a total surveillance society. So will there be any kind of surveillance reform, at least with regard to the government, as as you see it, with all the Snowden revelations? So I, first of all, I'm, I'm a great optimist, and I'm also terrible at the crystal ball of, <laughs> of Washington about what will pass and what won't. So um, I'm going to give you the more probably the more rosy uh, version of what I think will happen. As you know, at the end of, of this year, um, in, uh, in mid-November of 2014, the um, Senate failed to reach a vote on proposed amendments uh, to Section 215 and some of the other surveillance Laws and it was an incredible disappointment. It's something we worked very hard on, and we believe that that there, a solution is possible. I mean, we're not saying we at CDT you know want the country to be safe. We believe there is a need for legitimate, limited law enforcement and national security operations. Right. We do not believe that there is a need to have an always-on surveillance society, whether it's in your telephone calls or your internet traffic or your car or your home. We believe there is a fundamental right to. Again, the, the, the digital self, the privacy of the individual in their physical self and in their data assets. Um, and so I, I do believe there will be reform. I do believe, I, I, I first of all, I implore the members of Congress to, to act on this because I think without that, um, we have really lost the trust of the American people in what their government does with their information. Um, and I think we have tilted too far. And again, I speak with you know, great passion and great concern having worked at Homeland Security and, and wanting this country to be safe. But I believe we have tilted too far in the direction of, oh, well, just because, you know, we can collect it, we should. Um, that is not the, the, the right analysis. The analysis is, is it necessary? Is it legitimate? Is it narrowly tailored? Is it going to further the needs of an actual, you know, law enforcement or national security investigation? Um, and so I do believe, I, th- I think that there are great people working not only at CDT, but at a number of advocacy organizations. The companies are aligned with us on this. Um, which I think is a great, a great array of, of strength and talent uh, from the, the civil society and the, the corporate sector. I believe the time is now. Um, I think we will see movement on actual law. But I think you raise an even greater point, which is setting aside the, the, the important and, and really compelling issues of NSA surveillance and, and U.S. 
you know, government and really global governments because we're not alone in this. It really right. is going on everywhere. Exactly. What is our daily life? What is our, you know, the French word, the vie quotidienne? What does our everyday life look like when we've got houses and cars and machines and phones <laughs> and every part of our day yes. is wired? Right. And listen, let me, let me give you first a positive view of that. You know, my, you asked kind of why even I, I, I joined CDT and, and how it's going this first year. My daughter is a second grader at a girls' Catholic school in the Washington, D.C. area. And um, she asked me, Mommy, why did you, you know, why did you do this job? Why, why is it what you do? <laughs> and I said, you know, Maggie, when I was your age, I remember reading a book in a in a Catholic school in New York City, uh, which was probably already out of date at that point, but I remember vividly sitting in this little uh, little classroom reading a book that said, someday, someday, there will be phones, and you'll be able to see the person you're talking to. And I remember <laughs> vividly, it was a yeah. picture of what looked like a desktop computer with a phone on, you know, one of those curly wires, like, a, you know, an actual rotary phone right. sticking out of the side with a person looking at the screen. And, you know, I held up my iPhone, and I said, Maggie, you know, my, here. <laughs> that was my future. You're living what is what I thought my future looked like in you know in second grade, and she said to me the quintessential question, which is, "Mommy, what does my future look like?" Aww. And I thought that is why I do this job because I want her future to have all the benefits of, of the technology developments of the you know. I said, Maggie, you're going to wake up when you're my age. And your your house, your walls are going to be screens, and you're going to touch the screen, or you're going to look at the screen, and you're going to say, computer, make me my breakfast. You know, right, it's going to be right. something out of Star Trek or Star exactly. Wars, hopefully not, more, more Star Trek. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, the technology should be there to serve you and to make a better life. And, you know, I, and I am a big believer in the, the big societal swings that we can take in healthcare, in education, in energy, in the environment. Um, but there have got to be rules. There have got to be limitations on what is collected, how is how it is used, how long it is stored. And so you're right to pinpoint that the crucial issue right now is creating the boundary between the self and the government and the, and the companies and the government. That is right. the issue on the table today. But the larger issue is how much in an always-on, always-connected world do we have to give in order to truly engage. Yes. And that's got that boundary, that negotiation is still an open playing field. And I'm so honored to be a part of it. It's it's just I really do wake up every day like I did when I was in the government and thought, you know, what are we gonna do today? Like how are we gonna change the world? And right. so I am excited. I am again. I'm, it's a good thing I'm like constitutionally an optimist because <laughs> it's not always easy, but it is an exciting. And we are still, as Jeff Bezos loves, to, you know, his big phrase is, "We are still on day one of the internet." Yes, and that is exactly the right way to look at it. Folks who want to say, "Oh, so much data is already out there, and so much has already happened, and I give up. It's already too late." It is not too late. It right. is just the beginning. Yes. You know, I have a time for just one more question, and I know that the 40th anniversary of the U.S. Privacy Act is this month, so it's coming up for amendment, and boy, it sure needs to catch up, and when it was created, it was really wonderful. So can you just give us some points on what you think should be amended? Oh, that's such a great question, and I do love the Privacy Act. As limited as it is, it is the sole law that governs the data collected about you by the government, and so we should embrace it and endorse it and strengthen it. Yes. You're right that it was written in 1974, so it reflects mainframe computers that were the size of your house. Yes. Um, it needs to be expanded, right? It needs, to, it needs to cover data of all persons. You know, right now it just covers U.S. citizens and, and U.S. persons. We need to show respect for visitors to this country just as, as the laws of other countries respect 
us when we go there and, and really talk about the data of the human. Right. Um, I'd love to see, you know, frankly, I'd love to see stronger privacy laws that really create a level playing field no matter where the data goes, you know, is it government, is it private sector, let's make this easy for the individual citizen to understand what the running rules are as they engage in the digital world. But I'll take, I'll take some small, some baby steps, which are expanding the rights of, of, of all persons under the Privacy Act when the data is held by the U.S. government. So right now it's just the U.S. government. How about expanding it to private industry? Is that something that you think should be happening. I remember at the time, that was a big, um, you know, brouhaha, whether it should also be expanded to private industry. And, and of course, we already do have, again, some good privacy laws and terrific enforcement in the private sector. We've got the Graham-Leach-Bliley, we've got Children's Online Privacy Protection, we've got, so we've got health, edu- uh, we've got health kids, uh, I like to say, uh, HIPAA, the yeah. abortion, health kids, sex and money, you know, are all yeah, already yeah, yeah. covered. But, um, but it's such a patchwork, isn't it? I also think that there is great work being done by companies already, absent movement by, by Congress. We're seeing really good movements. Even by the the auto industry recently, as you were bringing up about your cars watching you, um, so I think that there's absolutely room for you know clear, better clarity of, of rules, and I think there's also room for responsible actors in the private sector to go ahead and make good rules even before legislation is passed. Yeah, well, we are out of time. You're just wonderful. So why don't you just give the website, and it'll be time for us to go. I'm so grateful again. Thank you for having me. It's CDT www. CDT for Center for Democracy and Technology.org. We think you're doing a fabulous job, and we're so thrilled that you're there. And thank you for all the great work that you're doing. And Nula, we'll talk to you again very soon. Thanks so much for having me. So okay. grateful to be here. Bye bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.